There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sophie Scott. And I'm James Gill. Our mission is to make wellness accessible to everyone. We'll be chatting with our favourite people. Sharing uplifting news stories. And delivering tips and tricks. To bring balance to your lives. Hello, welcome to the Balance Podcast. A very special guest today, one of the greatest authors of a generation, Jonathan Safran Foer. His new book, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, uh, is an eviscerating, vital read. I cannot recommend this book enough. I absolutely demolished this book because it's written by Jonathan who uh, had that huge early hit with everything is illuminated the 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 prose is beautiful the facts and the stats will slap you across the face it's a very timely episode with the uh, the climate protests raging in London this week uh, on a at the risk of editorializing on a, on a personal level I salute you um, and we, we, so we talk about, uh, Greta Thunberg. We talk a bit about Trump. He's, he's referenced in the book. Um, but Jonathan has an original and uplifting take on Trump. Uh, I won't spoil it. I also, I, I always, before I interview someone, I, I see the movie or I read the book or listen to the album, whatever it may be. So with Jonathan, I obviously did all my homework, uh, read all about him. Uh, and I make a blooper towards the end of this podcast uh, that I'm going to keep in. <laughs> I'm going to, I could have edited it out, but I'm going to keep it in. See if you can spot the blooper towards the end. And it's something that I knew, <laughs> but, oh man, uh, a friend of mine who helps me with the podcast and works, uh, works on podcasts a lot suggested I keep it in for authenticity. So that's what I've done. Um, but you, you, you're going to love Jonathan. As I say, one of the greatest, just one of the greatest writers. So to have him on the podcast. So he's written novels, but he's also written factual books. And uh, the thing with climate change is a lot of us, and he writes about this in the book. In the book, he, descri he describes it as a crisis of belief in so much as that a lot of us know it's a problem, but perhaps we're not doing enough about it. That's something I confess to in our, in our chat so this book, I mean, it's a hopeful book. It is a hopeful book. It is the equivalent of Jonathan uh, sort of grabbing us all by the lapels, if you like, <laughs> to say we really need to do something about this. But it's positive and hopeful in that Jonathan in this book is helping us 
do something about it and how we go about doing something about it. So I've already, for example, since we had our chat, I have been cutting down on my meat. And as someone who eats a lot of meat, uh, it's not been without its challenges, but it's a, a uh, an important challenge. Uh, so here he is. Just I, I could not have been more grateful to have had him on the podcast and what a, an amazing guest he was. Jonathan Saffron Fower. The book is out now. I urge you to read it. We are the weather with the tagline, saving the planet begins at breakfast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. What an honour and and what a book. Um, how, how was this to write? Because it, it, the, the passion is almost palpable. Were the words just flowing out of you? Was it, was this, I'm not for a second suggesting it was easy given the research that's in here, but I get the impression this this you were really feeling this one, weren't you? Well, I had a friend who's a writer who unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago who used to say, writing is like pulling teeth out of your penis. Uh, in my experience, the words don't, don't really flow out. It, it is always an effort. Um, this one, more than any other book I've written, including the novels, was really the record of a thought process. Like, so there wasn't a whole lot of um, planning or deliberating. I didn't have an argument that I wanted to share. It was more like a struggle that I wanted to share. And um, the book changes in form and tone as my thinking changed in form and tone. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very, very intuitive. It was like a record of an exploration. That really comes across. I that, Now that you say that, I, that, I really felt that. Were you getting, the more you were diving into it, were you getting, like I was, the more upset and energized and, and angry? Totally. Um, I mean, I, I wonder who you were getting angry at. Cause Myself, I, mostly. Well, me too. I'm, yeah. I'm sort of glad you said that. Um, I think there's a temptation with climate change and maybe even more broadly with all of the problems in the world right now to feel these strong emotions and to point them at the most convenient vessels rather than at the right vessels. Yes. And um, when it comes to climate change, there are an awful lot of villains in the world. Um, Bolsonaro might be one. Trump might be one. Yes. Um, Boris Johnson might be one. The fossil fuel industry is certainly one. Yeah. But we are also among mm -hmm. the villains. You know, um, One of the motivations for writing this book was this kind of intolerable disappointment I'd grown to feel um, about myself. You know, knowing what I knew, and I, I didn't know more than most people. I read the paper, I read magazines, I listen to the podcasts. Um, anybody who has his eyes and ears open in the world right now knows what climate change is, knows that it's happening. There are very, very, very few people in the world who deny the science of climate change anymore. Everybody who knows what's happening cares about what's happening. So I would put myself in that vast category of people who knew and who cared. And I was doing almost nothing. If I were to be honest with myself, yep. not only was I doing almost nothing, I was one of the bad guys. You know, my carbon footprint is probably much worse than that of the average climate denier. Um, and yet I heard myself saying all the time, someone's got to do something. Someone's got to do something. I went to the marches. I wore the t-shirts. I made the, you know, clever posters and yet I wasn't doing anything. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because um, of the way that the cultural conversation was escalating or the amount of news was escalating. Something was creating a kind of pressure that made that feel unsustainable, like a, a reckoning was required. Why? I mean, 
there's a there's a, a bit in the book from Stephen Hawking, you know, one of the one of the greatest minds ever. Um, and in the book, you say something like, "Even by the 2030s, we may need a, a second Earth." The, the way things are going. So why do why don't more of us feel the fire on this one? Why are we so passive? Do you think? So uh, by the by second Earth, what I what I meant was um, there's an organization called the Global Footprint Initiative, which calculates um, humankind's needs. The, the resources that are required for our ways of living as compared to the resources that the, that the planet can offer. And that number is different depending on where you live. So if you live, if everybody in the world lived like a Bangladeshi, for example, yes. we would only need an earth the size of Asia. If everyone lived like a Chinese person, we would, we would need an earth the size of earth. We'd be doing actually okay for now. If everyone lived like an American, God forbid, we would need four earths to satisfy our earthly needs. So in terms of the average global citizen, by the year 2030, we'll need a second Earth to um, simply sustain our way of living, which is to say it's unsustainable, especially as the population is increasing, even though the Earth isn't getting any bigger. Um, so a lot of very smart people, I think, get weirdly stupid when thinking about this and talking about this um, and suggest really far-flung um, antidotes or remedies rather than incremental ones that are right in front of us. You know, what we need to do to save the planet, it's not insane. We need to reduce carbon emissions by about 60% in 10 years. So people are constantly overestimating what we can get done in a year and underestimating what we can get done in a decade. Yeah. Um, getting done what we need to get done will involve some individual change and some systemic change, like legislated change. Um, marches are good, you know, and they're expanding the awareness and consciousness. They don't seem to be pushing corporations very fast and they don't seem to be pushing governments very fast. And so what I'm suggesting in the book is that there are things we can do in our own lives that are not radical. They don't require us having totally different identities. You don't have to become a vegan. You don't have to stop flying. You don't have to stop driving. But if we do those things with moderation, we can not only have real world impact, but also push corporations and push governments to make better choices. Well, one thing that does upset me is that the several older people and a certain demographic, the way that they talk down to the people who are stating what are facts. Why, why is this? Because that, that seems incredibly frustrating. Do you, consider, do you consider yourself among the older people or the younger people? Well, I'm, I mean, I mean, factually, I am an older person. But when you have younger people protesting and going on marches and, you know, dare I say, doing the, the right thing, um, it, it is upsetting that they're being mocked and uh, the opprobrium that is being heaped on them by the other side, if you like, it just seems so at odds with the message they're trying to put across. I think there's probably two ways of looking at that. One is generous and one is not generous. So the, oh, the, the, hit me with both. <laughs> yeah, the not generous way of looking at it is these are, you know, ignorant assholes who um, uh, don't want to be confronted by a truth that will require them to live any bit differently than they're used to. And it's much easier to make fun of a 16-year-old girl who is leading student marches than to frankly, make some small changes in one's own life to have to confront one's own problems. 
That's the ungenerous way of looking at it. The generous way of looking at it is climate change makes us very afraid. And we know that something huge is at stake. In fact, we can't imagine anything larger being at stake. And we know our own complicity in it. And that encourages us oftentimes to run toward extremes. You know, like one form of that extreme is we're doomed or we're going to be fine. You know, a lot of people, myself included, find those to be like resting places psychologically. I, I don't know about you, but I often when I if, if I'm not like vigilant against these extremes, my, my brain often goes to either we're doomed or we're fine. And the truth is we're not doomed and we're not going to be fine. Yeah. Like we're at the beginning of this process of loss that we have a lot of control, near complete control over. But those extremes can also lead us to do things like make fun of a 16 year old. Um, because it's scandalous, you know, it really is. It really is. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the result, not the generous interpretation is it's not the result of evil. It's the result of fear. Like that's, that's a very, um, afraid person lashing out. I'm going to quote a line of your, of, of your own book back at you, Jonathan. Here. There's a beautiful line, um, from the, the great derangement, the climate crisis is also a crisis of culture and thus of the imagination. And then as you say, I would call it a crisis of belief. Now, how do how do we spread the message beyond? I imagine that you and I probably live in similar, call it an echo chamber, call it a bubble. We you know we probably have similar kinds of friends. How do we spread the message to the to the people who need to get it the most? Well, we are the people who need to get it the most. You know, there's a misunderstanding that some sizable portion of the world is just ignorant and doesn't accept climate science. And if we could just somehow force the science into the heads of these numbskulls, then we would solve the problem. And that really is not the situation. In America, which is, by the way, behind the UK and behind Europe, um, in terms of climate awareness, 91% of Americans accept the science of climate change. Mm -hmm. 70% of Americans, including the majority of Republicans, wanted the US to stay in the Paris Climate Accords. So the problem is not ignorance. It's not knowledge. It's, as you were saying, um, belief. And that's a problem that I have yeah. and probably you have as well. You know, we know what's going on. We are not the kind of people who say, well, the scientists are simply wrong, <laughs> except with that we act that way. Yes. You know, yeah. like rhetorically, we would say, of course, science is right, you know. And yet in our practices, it's we suggest that we actually don't believe what we know. And so closing the distance between what we know and what we believe or what we know and what we do is is the problem. So, you know, people sometimes say to me, don't you think you were just preaching to the choir uh, when you wrote this book? But there isn't a choir. Like we all sort of share this problem oh, right now. brilliant, yeah. And so the question is, how do we wake ourselves up, you know, to what we know? And that is a real problem. And I know it's a problem that I have. You know, as I said, I didn't write this book um, having come to some place of enlightenment and just wanting other people to follow. I have a really hard time with this in my own life, um, finding the right balances. And I think it's a, it is a question of, of balances, you know? So for example, you know, I, I know that there are four things that matter more than all others, dramatically more than all others when it comes to climate change, flying less, driving less, eating less meat and having fewer kids. I took a plane to London and I drew, I drove to the studio today. Like, how do I square that? Well, in that specific case, I can maybe square it by saying that was worth it in order to try to get other people talking about this and thinking about it. 
but how do I square it when I like fly for vacation with my kids? Or how do I square it when I drive out of convenience in New York, which I do all the time? How do I square not being a perfect eater, you know, despite the fact that I've now written this book about the relationship between food and climate change? I square it by saying I'm a human and it's complicated. It's messy to be a human, but that doesn't get me off the hook of acting on what I know. Um, Acting on what I know does not require becoming robotic about life, and it doesn't require being perfect, but it requires acting. Um, Unfortunately, we've gotten to this habit where we measure our distance from some sort of like ethical perfection rather than measuring our distance from doing absolutely nothing. You know, most of us are so afraid of hypocrisy, so afraid of someone saying, but wait a minute, come on, I just saw you eat that thing yesterday, but wait a minute, you flew here from this... And even smart people go right to that. It's so tempting because I think we're afraid, you know, and because we know what the stakes are, that we would rather just excuse ourselves completely from this whole enterprise than have to acknowledge that we're not perfect. And also, you're not, what you're not saying with this book, uh, you know, and indeed life, you're not saying that we all have to go vegan immediately, either, either are you. It's, it's about making those significant tweaks to our, to our lives. Well, not only do we not have to go vegan immediately, we don't have to go vegan ever. That's not what's required. Um, what's required is that we eat quite a bit less. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be so radical. It can be, you know, people say, oh, God, we're going to have to invent a whole new food system. What we actually have to do is uninvent the food system that we have now and live much more like our parents and grandparents did before industrialized agriculture ran the show. The most comprehensive analysis of the relationship between food and the environment was published last year. And what the author said was people who live in undernourished parts of the world can actually afford to eat a little more meat and a little more dairy. But people who live in the UK and the US, they singled out those two territories, have to eat 90% less meat and 60% less dairy. So, you know, you raised your eyebrows when I just said that. They nearly came off my head. Yeah. It's a grim uh, statistic, but it's not, it's not unreachable. And it's not to say that we have to reach it instantly. Um, A lot of the meat and dairy that we eat, we eat out of habit, you know, not even convenience and definitely not pleasure, but out of habit. Like, you know, you have this ham sandwich because you had it yesterday. You don't even really like it. It doesn't make you feel good. It has no cultural significance. If we could just begin by removing the things we truly don't care about, it would be an amazing start. And we would pay no price for it because we don't care. The next step might be, you know, if I were to ask you, not not as a hypothetical, but I'm really asking sure, you yeah, right yeah. now, like, tell me the times when you eat meat, when it feels like it really, when it really matters to you. So what I might include are like family occasions where it feels like meat is at the center of it culturally, let's say, or yes. ritualistically. Or if you go to like a really nice restaurant mm. because you've heard that the chef prepares the makes a great steak or whatever. If if you were to like really like confront yourself and question how often, how many meals a month does meat is it really significant? It really matters to you. What do you think you would say? I, I would say that the the Gill family, uh, myself, my wife, two kids, we will have a Sunday roast. Yeah, and that, and I would say the meat is. So, I mean, I, I hate myself for this answer, but it, I'm being honest. I don't know why you would hate yourself. I feel like, like the meat the meat is central to that meal. So we would go to the butcher on the Saturday. We yeah. would get, you know, the the, the beef, the pork, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Um, and then the Sunday roast is that 
occasion, if you like. But beyond that, you know, not much else really, I guess, in terms of... So I thought you were going to say a lot more than that, actually. Well, in, terms uh, of, in terms of it being like integral, you know, if, yeah. you know, if my wife said, you know, this Friday you can't have ribs, I wouldn't be... <laughs> Why? Yeah, you know? right. So I, I appreciate your honesty in that answer. You got to move away from the I hate myself because it's just <laughs> like you're 40 years too late it, for that. No, because it's not necessary. And that kind of thinking like that is exactly what I was talking about when you feel vulnerable because, look, you're talking to me and I wrote this book and it's easy to like, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I hate yeah. that I'm that guy now. But um, <laughs> but the, the you feel vulnerable. So you went to an extreme. I hate myself. Well, I hate yourself. So you enjoy it with your family. That, to me, sounds like a, a good use of meat. Sure. Like, you know, you go to the butcher with your kids or your wife. You prepare it. Presumably, you prepare it yourself. Absolutely. Right? You put energy into it. It's maybe something you guys do together. And it feels like a big sustaining in, in both the sense of, like, food, but also in the sense of associations and psychology, a big sustaining meal. So what I would say is, so keep that. Like, that sounds good to me. But what about, like, all of the lunches in between? Sure. Like... Can you conceive of a world in which you don't eat meat for those lunches? You probably can. It might be a little inconvenience. It might require some new habit forming, but it's not going to like ruin your life. It's not going to make your life less happy, probably. Now, as someone who does eat a lot, you know, we'll hold my hands up. As it stands, I do eat a lot of meat prior to reading this book. Um, So it might be more of a gradual thing. I probably couldn't, you know, let's say uh, on a typical lunch, I'd grab a sandwich that had meat in it. I don't think I could go from the extreme I'm at now to, say, from today, cutting out completely. But maybe if I start off four days, three days, two days, I guess that's the way to approach it. I think so. That sounds really smart. I also think being concrete is a good way to approach it. So I'll tell you about an experience that I had just a couple of weeks ago. I gave a reading in Brussels. And at the end, there was like a book signing and a couple came up to me and put their book in front of me and opened it to the title page, which is normally empty except for the title. And their handwriting was all over it. And I said, what's this? And they said, we're getting married in a couple months. And we decided tonight that we need to have a plan because if we don't have a plan, we're just going to do what we've always done. And the plan that they wrote was eat vegetarian unless served meat at a friend's house. Um, Eat vegan two days a week have no more than two kids and drive no more than 1500 kilometers in the next year. And then instead of having me just sign it, they wrote a a line and underneath it said witness and they wanted me to sign that. And it was really charming and it was interesting to get a kind of insight into how they live, the particularities of their values. It was also really shaming to me because despite the fact that I'd written this book and I was the guy on stage and I was the guy signing the books, I didn't have a plan. I didn't realize it until they showed me their plan that I didn't have a plan. I was, I would just say like, I'm going to try to fly less next year. I'm going to try to drive less. I'm going to, and it's bullshit. Like to say, I'm going to try to do this thing is to say, I'm going to do not much at all. And I went home and on a piece of hotel stationery, I wrote out my plan. So what I would say to you is you don't have to be more ambitious than you can actually do. And it's worth being honest. So if you say, you know what, I'm going from somebody who eats a lot of meat to somebody who's going to eat less over time. I eat it every, if we're being honest, you have it every single day at lunch, would you say? No, we, we do, uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, we do meat-free Monday. Okay. So you otherwise pre- pretty much. Yeah. So you have meat six days a week for lunch. You know yeah. what? Yeah, I reckon I do. Okay. So maybe you could say, I'm going to start by doing meat-free Monday and Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Write it down on a piece of paper. 
right? Because if you say, I'm going to try to eat a little bit less meat, if you're like me, like it doesn't go very far. If you write down, I'm going to do Monday and Thursday, show it to your wife, show it to your kids, show it to your friends, say it on the radio. My wife will be ecstatic. Well, then maybe you should do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. <laughs> but um, codifying your plan, like really putting it into words and numbers, and then say, and I'll revisit my plan in February and maybe add another day of the week, you know? Or if it feels like that's my limit, then I'll, I'll stick with that. But um, I think we, it's, we're at a moment in this crisis when we can't be loose, you know, with language and loose with our intentions. Yeah. We don't all have to reach the same place. And we don't all have to take the same path. But we have to all be aimed in the same direction, which is like really simple. We just have to do less of the things that are destroying the planet. And I think that if we can be open to that idea, that we have to aim in the same direction, but not all take the same path, then I bet you we could make really great strides. And and have those conversations as well. You know, when you've got friends around for dinner and so on. Um, it, these are, now this book is packed with the sort of stats and facts that I would happily reel off at any dinner party. But the, these are important conversations to have, aren't they? They are, and they're also tough conversations to have. Yeah. And it's worth being really sensitive about how to have the conversations. Um, you know, I gave a reading... In, um, in, um, shit, where was it? It was in, um, Toronto just last week. And while I was on stage, it was having an onstage conversation, an animal rights activist got on stage and had a poster and said like, animals are never ours to hurt or to eat or to, and went on and on and on. And everybody in the crowd was going, boo, get her <laughs> off the stage. And security came and oh, got off the stage. And once she was gone, I said, you know, it's a real shame because- I bet you almost everything she said is something that almost everybody here would agree with. But she had a really bad way of saying yeah. it because it makes us feel attacked and it makes us feel demeaned and it makes her seem annoying rather than like kind of a, a reasonable person who's going a little further than you might go, but who cares about the same kinds of things we care about. Like, you know, you eat meat, Right. I have eaten meat many, many times in my life. If I were to ask you, do, do you think we should torture animals? You would say, no. Sure. Right. Of course. Everybody feels that way. That wasn't the bit I was nodding at, by the way. <laughs> right. Do I ever? Uh, yeah. Uh, Finally. Yeah. Um, no, nobody wants to torture animals. Nobody wants to destroy the environment. Like these things go without saying. They're universal human values. We want a food system that reflects our values. We don't have one right now like industrial agriculture factory farming completely dominate both america and europe um, in america 99.9 percent .9 of the animals that we eat come from factory farms it's better in england it's probably in like the high 80s and still not great it's still incredible isn't it yeah um and it's increasing by the way so we can agree we don't want that right mm. in america we say well that's all we have so we have to withdraw our money and withdraw our support. And when we're going to eat meat, we should eat it from small and family farmers. I don't mean small like short. I mean, the, the farms are small. Um, short ones are great as well. Yeah. They're every bit is good. Uh, but we also have to be realistic, right? There's more than 7 billion people that live on the planet. The amount of um, animal products that we consume right now, here's a good one for your dinner party. Um, I, I bet it sounds like the worst dinner party ever. <laughs> yeah. Please still come, please. Yeah. 
Um, the amount of animal products that we consume right now in the year 2019 is the equivalent of every person alive in the year 1700 eating 950 pounds of meat and drinking 1200 gallons of milk every day. So a lot of that is because we're used to eating huge amounts of meat and, and animal products. And a lot of it is because the population has exploded, right? But that's our reality. This is where we are. We just have a ton of people on a relatively small planet and we cannot eat the ways that we've been used to eating. We just have to eat less. As we eat less, we can then dismantle that system and go back to the kinds of farmers that we both respect. I'm a vegetarian, but I respect animal farmers. I do. They're not like in it to hurt animals. I mean, they're in it to kill animals, but there's a big difference between hurting an animal and killing an animal. Yes. Actually, it's an important distinction. And they're not in it to destroy the environment. It, of course, they're not. Nobody became a farmer to do those things. But their practices have been, are now dictated to them by these, by this industry. So um, as we eat less meat, we can move toward that kind of farming, which is something that I think, you know, most people really do respect. Now, you mentioned the four things in terms of the flying. Is it just is it just as simple as maybe not holidaying abroad? You know, if you if you fly abroad twice a year, you just cut it down to one, or maybe one every other year. Is it is it as simple as that? Any other? What's well, it's as simple as the less we do, the less harm we inflict. And um, you know, it's clearly much worse to fly on a private plane than to fly on a commercial plane. It's much worse to fly across the ocean than to fly domestically. So, you know, it's there's a danger in becoming in oversimplifying it. Um, I can tell you, as you know, my plan that I wrote down in the hotel room was not to fly for vacations in 2020. Um, I fly for work. That feels justified to me. If this were a novel instead of this book, I don't know how I would feel about it. I'm open to having my feelings change. Um, I'm open to like learning things from other people and hearing how other people do things. Um, my my plan for now is not to fly on vacation because even though I've done it every year for as long as I can remember, even though I love traveling, I love seeing other parts of the world. And it, not only is it pleasurable, but it feels good. It feels like a good thing to have your perspective expanded and to realize that your way of doing things is very narrow, you know, but, you know, by train, I can get to a thousand super interesting places from New York. I can show my kids Montreal, Toronto, Chicago. We can go camping in Pennsylvania, upstate New York. We can see historical sites in Virginia and Maryland. There, there's so many things to do that right now, facing what we're facing, we can make that change. And it's not going to feel like we're not going to become martyrs. You know, it's not going to feel like a massive sacrifice. In fact, when we like layer in this conversation about why we're doing it this way, I suspect it will be even more fun or it will feel even better. And there's something. Yeah, that, uh, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The same about that with food as well. Like the best meal you've ever had, the pleasure of that meal pretty much ends when you swallow the last bite. Right. And then if you want to get more food pleasure, you have to have another meal. Um, the pleasure of acting on your values of like being the person you want to be of participating in saving the planet rather than destroying it. It's not as immediate as food and it's not as like primitive and visceral as food, but it's a real pleasure yeah. and it's deep and it lasts, you know, beyond 
the last bite of the meal. So try it. You can tell me what you think. But my guess is if you had a conversation with your kids and your wife and you said, hey, guys, know how we normally on a Wednesday night have burgers or steak or chicken or whatever? We're going to do it vegetarian tonight. It's going to be different. And here's why we're doing it. Because nature's awesome. You know, because we like uh, living on the planet as it is. And I want you guys, you know, my kids, I want you to have that too. And if you have kids, I want them to have that too. So here's something we can do as a family to work toward that. Maybe the meal wouldn't suck. Like maybe even though you were eating different kinds of foods, maybe it would feel really good, you know, as a family to be doing that. I think we're so used to looking at these changes as deprivations that we forget. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. How good it would feel, you know? If London were to become the first carbon-neutral city in the world, yeah. it would require an awful lot of change, you know, and a lot, a lot of inconvenience, at least for now, and frustrations. Do you think London would be a happier place at the end of it or a less happy place? If every other city in the world looked at London and said, whoa, how did they do that? Amazing. If other mayors, you know, from other cities were, you know, getting in line to talk to the mayor of London to say, we want to be like you, explain to us how you managed to do that. My guess is Londoners would feel extremely proud. Um, parents would feel proud of being parents in that time. Kids would feel proud of being kids living in London. Um, and the, the general level of happiness would increase despite the fact that so many of the habits would have to change. Um, so I think it's worth remembering that there is also like joy behind this. I nearly saluted you there, like, you know, the Bill Pullman speech in Independence Day. Was, yeah. That was one, that was one that of was my ones. model, actually. That's that was, what I was just man, modeling was, myself after. Genuinely beautiful. Will you follow me? Yeah, yeah Jonathan, <laughs> emphatically, yes, I will, I will. Um, now, in the book, you reference um, World War Two. Yeah. And touching on something you just said there, obviously horrendous things happened in World War II. So, uh, listener, bear with me where I'm going with this one. But there is that feeling of, I mean, you know, my my 
granddad served in, in the war. I used to love listening to his and my grand stories from that time. What comes across is that feeling of community, togetherness, people being united. And and in the book, you, you draw those kinds of parallels. And I know there's obviously a, a difference. But there is something to be said for that, isn't there? there? There could be something magical and profound about us all getting together on this one. Well, I, I, that was my own Bill Pullman moment. Yeah, and I do you have a box of Kleenex because I'm starting to weep. I um, that's how I look at it, and um, imagine how inspiring that would be. You know, if we could get it together as families, as countries, and just as Earthlings. So one of the challenges is during World War II, there were good guys and bad guys. And the bad guys were easy to recognize. They had uh, tiny little mustaches, not exactly like yours. And, uh, you know, would goose step and would do the Heil Hitler. And the good guys were easy to recognize. They had cigars and, you know, gave the victory sign. Climate change is us against us, you know. Um, nobody's going to destroy the world except for us and nobody's going to save the world except for us. It is much, much more difficult to confront oneself that can, than to confront the other and to demonize the other. And one of the challenges that we've had is we don't know. It's it's not easy to tell this story. Like who is exactly is the bad guy? What are the weapons of war? Who's the good guy? Um, it's one of the reasons why I think Greta Thunberg has been so profoundly powerful mm. is she's the first hero yeah. of climate change. Yeah. The first one where we can say like, yeah, I'll follow that. Absolutely. Like, that sounds great to me. <laughs> like, tell me what to do. I And uh, you know, when she speaks, I, I find her extremely captivating. Oh I my say. gosh. Absolutely. But when she speaks, I feel like, I have to say, I feel like a soldier, you know? Yeah. And which is why I wish she, her, her rhetoric would start to um, aim itself toward action. You know, I, I went to a, a concert a couple months ago and in between the performance and the encore, they showed a video of Greta Thunberg talking to the audience and everyone stood up at the end and applauded wow. and was like, hell yeah. But she didn't ask for anything. You know, if she had said, which is why I want everyone in this room to boycott beef, I'm telling you, yeah. 5,000 people would have boycotted beef. If she had said, I want you all to, you know... Uh, let's let's boycott leisure air travel for the next month. I'm telling you, five thousand yeah. people would have done it. I think there is a concealed will right now. You know, people want to solve this problem and are willing to make changes. They're not willing to go vegan tomorrow. And they're not willing to walk everywhere tomorrow, but they're willing to make changes. They're willing to make the changes that are necessary. But we need like have a clearer version of the story that creates that sense of camaraderie, you know, that people felt during the war. Um, and I think we can have it. We just are figuring out right now, what's the right language to use. Unfortunately, the language thus far has been really destructive because it's pointed out. It's made it, it's made it feel like um, it's liberals versus conservatives or it's young people versus old people. When we're either going to solve this together or we're going to suffer it together. Uh, and we need to find a, a rhetoric that uh, reveals that. You, 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 are, you are absolutely uh, correct. I, I, th- I, guess, I guess what I was getting at earlier is, you know, there's the bit in the book with, with Trump and the sheer volume of the, of the tweets and 
just how clear he's made that stance. It is somewhat. I mean, I guess this is a, an entirely different podcast. What I'm about to say, there is something demoralising with, with the, the people who are in power in my country and your country. It does. It, it is hard for the uh, the soul not to sink at least a, a few centimeters, isn't it? Well, I would I would suggest it's just the opposite that it's hard for the soul not to rise in response to that. I'm going to um, salute again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Trump is accidentally the most important environmentalist in the world right now. He's probably done more than even Greta Thunberg in the sense that his ignorance has really compelled a kind of like wisdom, I think on us and his total apathy has compelled an action. The environmental movement in the United States was half or a 10th, of what it uh when, when he was elected a tenth of what it is now if there wasn't a table I, I, i'm tempted to crawl over and kiss you on the forehead well it's a, thank god there's a table <laughs> uh he has made things so bad that it has like really forced a change i don't want him to stay in office sure um but you know listen i campaigned for hillary i certainly voted for hillary and i was despondent when she lost if she had won the U.S. would have been in the Paris Climate Accord still. Yeah. But like the U.K. and like every country in Europe, um, we wouldn't have met its goals. You know, there's only two countries in the world that are on pace to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords. Gambia and Morocco. Those are the only two countries on the planet. That dinner party's just gone up another notch. Yeah. That might have redeemed some of the other crap you had to lay on people. Um, those are the only two countries in on the planet that are on pace to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords. So, yes, if Hillary had been president, our name would have been on the right line, on the right document, and we would have all felt complacent. We would have felt like, it's okay because we're still signatories of that thing, and it's okay because she has good intentions and she's liberal. And um, it may be that what we needed was Trump. You know, things have to get bad in a certain way before they can get good. And um, when you see, you know, millions of kids marching... I think he is as responsible for that as anybody. So instead of feeling that impotent rage, that feeling of, you know, it's easy to shrug and think, well, what what can I do? I sound like I'm doing an advertorial for your book. And I mean, by the way, I'd be happy to. But it's up to us, isn't it? Instead of instead of thinking we can do nothing, as this book says, we all can do a great deal. We can do a great deal, but we have to be clear about you know, what that great deal is. And um, I would uh, I would invite anybody listening to this, and I would certainly invite you to be clear, you know, to, it's, it's not enough to feel that this is important. Yeah. You know, it's not enough even to tell others that it's important. What matters is that we show it through our behavior and how we spend money, you know, like we have to withdraw our money from the worst actors and support corporations that are making environmentally conscious choices and that are making it easier for us to make environmentally conscious choices. So um, we have to be specific and concrete. Now, I know you've got to go, but before you do go, um, you are responsible for some of the most um, beloved books of, of recent times. Now, may I ask, what what was that like when that um, that breakout success happened my first book um well i'll tell you it came so i worked on a men's magazine it doesn't exist anymore i worked on shortlist when that first book came out mm-hmm. and the excitement in the office over 
what you delivered there. So, I mean, I, feel, I mean, I forget what I forget what year it was, but I mean, it felt exciting at the time. So the fact that it was happening to you must have been mind blowing. Oftentimes, what happens to you is invisible to you until later. Yes, you know, because yeah, you're, you're yeah. living it. Um, I was lucky because my book um, before it was that success. It was rejected by, I think, 14 agents in New York. I finally found an agent. She sent it to literally every major publishing house in New York, and it was rejected by every major publishing house. And then she fell ill and had to stop agenting. And I thought, God, I don't know what to do here. Should I push on with this book a little bit? Should I try to write another book? Or should I just call it a day and become a doctor or something like that? Uh, I decided to give it another push, and I sent it to an agent. Um, Nicole Laraji, who's still my agent and will be my agent until, until I die. And um, then the book found a very different reception. Um, so I learned right at the beginning how fickle like the marketplace is and how capricious these things are. Um, I wrote a book I was proud of, you know, um, but the pride could not be attached to the reception. Otherwise, I would have given up at the beginning and similarly, I can't, I couldn't be, there's a limit to how excited I could feel about the reception when it was good um, because of that awareness that I had of how, how fickle a marketplace is. So, you know, I had, I was, I'm the luckiest writer I've ever met. I've had, I had a really great fortune. Um, and what's made me most lucky is that um, I get to spend my time thinking about and writing about the things that I care about. Um, so I don't know if that's an answer to your question. That, it's a heck of an answer. I mean, how 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 did it feel when the um, what if it was when the when the when the movie actually came out? But how does it then feel when you know Elijah Wood and it's it's being turned into a a, a movie? I mean, it's incredible. You know, it is. It is for sure. It is. Um, the older I get, the less incredible things like that feel. Really? Yeah, because we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, not to put too fine a point on it, we're all going to die, and it, it doesn't matter if a movie was made of your book or not. Like the thing that has been so great about that is, yes. first of all, I like collaborating with interesting artistic people. Um, Liev Schreiber, who directed and wrote that film is one of my best friends to this day. And I love talking about ideas with him. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to have that friendship or that collaboration if he hadn't adapted the film. The adaptation of the film brought a lot of readers to my book, which was a great thing. Um, and it gave me more freedom, you know, to have control over my time. The only thing that matters in life, as far as I can tell, is having as much control over your time as possible so that you can spend your finite amount of time doing the things that are significant to you. Um, the other stuff is, it feels so important in the moment and then is revealed to be so unimportant in retrospect. You know, I know that on my deathbed, so many of the ways that I spent my life will just seem like, why? And so many of the ways that I spent my emotions will seem like, why? Like, who cares about that shit, you know? Um, which is not to not to um, sort of erase the goodness of them or to be ungrateful for them. I'm just saying the thing that I'm grateful for was not that, um, you know, 
a stranger halfway around the planet was excited about it. And it's not that it was, you know, films are like featured in popular magazines and things like that. Um, Because of those things that I was so lucky to have, I got to write the books that I wanted to write. I got to spend time with my kids in ways that most people just aren't lucky enough to do because um, they're trying so hard to make ends meet. You know, that's the reality for almost everybody on the planet. The struggle to make ends meet takes up almost all of our lives. Um, so the thing that has made me most lucky as a, a writer, the thing I'm most grateful for is that I haven't had to struggle to make ends meet and I haven't had my time dictated to me by others. Well, the very last thing in that case, um, and I'm so grateful because what, you, what you're what you're giving there, in my opinion, is is ultimately almost the, the, the meaning of life and as somebody who is guilty of working way way too much I, I i get you know i guess i'm not putting words in your mouth but have you come to realize that being with the the wife and the kids is ultimately what it's all about well i'm divorced so i wouldn't say that i've come to hang realize that that's what it's all i'm gonna have to i, I, I can't include <laughs> that's that's too mortifying i can't include that in hang on, i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to rephrase no that. it's fine i, I don't mind so i don't sorry. mind I'm I'm so, of course you are of course you are I'm I, so sorry. I, I, listen, it was five years ago. Listen, <laughs> nothing could bother me less. Honestly, are. honestly. Oh my god! Hang on, let me rephrase this. Let me rephrase this. I am. You, so, you don't, you don't have that. to. No, I'm. I, I'm so British. I, that will keep me awake at night. Right. Um, did you, you come? Did you come to realize that time with the the children was was what it was all about? It's not what it's all about. Um, it's a large part of what it's about for me. So is, by the way, like when they're in school and I have my own time and I can think about things in a more adult way, you know? Uh, so is time with friends. I, I think that um, there's a temptation in America, I don't know if it's true here, for to think of parenting as this like, oh God, I don't know, like the purpose of life where you're fully, it's like, oh yeah, that's when I felt real gratification. I don't really get that. I think that's almost a story we tell because of what a drag parenting can be so much of the time. You know, the reality is a lot of parenting is like robotic. It it just is. It's like changing diapers when anybody could really change diapers. Have the food ready at X o'clock. Exactly. Cleaning up. Do you know how much of my life I spend cleaning up? Either preparing for something or cleaning up after it takes up hours Every day. I got excited because I bought, just to completely echo what you said there, I bought a new uh, vacuum cleaner. It's got, I'll happy, happily do the plug. It's called The Shark. Because I spend so much of my life cleaning up, the fact that this vacuum is incredible has brought me way too much pleasure at the age of 41, but be, yeah. because of how much time is spent, you yeah. know, cleaning so, floors. You know, I think it's it's okay to to admit that, like, a lot of parenting, yeah, I would trade that for some other stuff. Okay. Um, but... Um, if you were to ask me what my primary identity in life is, yeah, it's, it's as a dad. Um, and that is the greatest source of joy for me, but it's by no means the only one. It's also the greatest source of frustration for me. So, uh, you know, it's a complicated mix of things. But I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at being honest with myself about um, what really matters and what, what doesn't really matter. But it's a, it's still a struggle. Like, you know, I have a book out now. If somebody writes a nasty review, am I capable of like sitting in the lotus position and saying, it's okay? Not really. Like I get pissed off and angry and wish it weren't the case. And obviously I want 
people to read my book. Some of it is for good reason. Some of it's for bad reason. I think, I hope that the good reasons are are increasing as I get older and the bad reasons are diminishing. What are the other, what's the other best use of time other than the, other than being with the kids and other than having that time alone to have a think? Um, I wish there were a less corny way to say this, but you know, to love and be loved, like to, to learn how to do both and to be open to doing both probably like being loved require is even harder than loving, Yeah, you know, and to maybe even requires more generosity because you have to like open yourself, you know, and, uh, make parts of yourself vulnerable that are, or exposed that are much, much easier kept protected. But, you know, that kind of loving and being loved can take an awful lot of different forms. Like it can take a form as a parent. It can take a form as romantic love. It can take a form as a child. It can also take a, a form as like a citizen of the earth. And in, in a funny way, just to bring the whole conversation back, at the bottom of climate change is like a memory of caring about other people. Um, you know, people often put it in terms of like, I want to make sure my kids have this. And I, I even did that earlier in this conversation, but there's something else going on, which is I want to make sure people halfway around the world, you know, um, have good lives. And if I can influence that, then I ought to, you know, right now it's as if, you know, Americans are smoking and Bangladeshis are getting lung cancer. And when we keep enjoying this habit of ours and they keep suffering it, being, totally unresponsible for it. Um, so if we can like remember our obligations to others, which ultimately come down to a kind of love, then um, it's not only our best hope for saving the planet, but it's our best hope for being worthy ourselves of, of being saved. J uh, Jonathan, before you go, what is the next project already uh, spinning or have you not come to that yet? Um, I'm trying a bunch of things. None of them feel great right now, but <clears throat> that's not unusual for me. It takes, it usually takes me quite a long time to figure out what it is that I even want to do. Um, and then it takes me a little longer to figure out whether or not I can do it. So uh, the short answer is no, I don't, I don't really know what I'm working on. Uh, Jonathan, whatever it is, um, if I enjoy it half as much as I enjoyed this and got out of this, then uh, I'm, in, I'm in for a treat. I cannot thank you enough. This is this was a total blast. Th thanks ever thank so much. Thank you. Man. I really appreciate that response. Thank Bless you. you. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Take care. Take care, man. Huge and heartfelt thanks to Jonathan. What an extraordinary guest. What an extraordinary guy. Um, <clears throat> a real, a real honour to meet him. Um, we are the weather. Tagline: Saving the planet begins at breakfast. We are the weather is out now, and I would. Uh, I would strongly recommend it if you're looking if you're looking for a new book, or indeed if, even if you're not. It's uh, it, it is a fascinating book, and uh, I absolutely loved it. I've I made script I made scribblings as I went along because when I interview people, there's things that I want to bring up, and it basically looks like vandalism. There's that much writing in it. So uh, yes, Jonathan, what a what a wonderful guest. Um, as ever, drop us a line. Podcast at balance.media for sales we're at uh, sales at i say we i don't i wouldn't see these emails I would, i'd say the other one not the sales one too much information you're quite right sales at balance.media have a great weekend we're back 
with the the regular. By the way, these bonus episodes, yes, please. Um, back with another one on Monday. Whatever you're up to, I really hope you. Uh, I really hope you enjoy it. Again, as ever, please spread the word. It really helps. Tweets, shares, all that. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you as always. Take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.